Welcome to another edition of the Prisk and Piers Political Powwow, or as we officially call it, e.g. office politics, which is becoming less and less about offices, but more and more about politics. That seems <laughs> fine. Um, as ever, I'm joined by Mark Prisk. Good to see you. Uh, very happy to be here. Uh, lots going on as ever, although rather dully. We still have the same Prime Minister, but hey. I know, I know. It seems, it seems like weeks yes. since we had a, a different one. <laughs> Absolutely. Whole weeks. Actually, on that, I, I, was, I was really hoping that we would have got to a point where we'd be able to have one of those weeks where we'd be able to get really deep down and dirty with the policy of something. Okay. Really, mm-hmm. really look at the uh, the ins and outs of, of, of some piece of legislation that's coming in, its impact, and, and, and really dissect that and move away from the... Um, the, the sort of the psychodrama of what's the froth, as, the froth, as we like to talk about the, when the it's about awkward things. Exactly, more yes. about the policy and less yes. about the politics. No, well, look, I'm very happy to. I've got my wellies, I've got my gloves on, so let's, <laughs> let's, let's delve. Let's dig in. But the, I mean, the problem is that there is still so much froth, isn't there? There's so That's much true. that is still going on. I mean, I've, the issue at the moment with the with the Leveling Up Bill going through mm-hmm. Parliament, or rather not going going through Parliament, mm-hmm. um, it seems that that the stall is now a stop until the new year, at least. Yes, well, uh, probably. Mm. I think to mean. I mean, I feel a bit for Michael Gove because you, you know, you've got a big bill that's got lots of different parts to it, and you're back in the role maybe you weren't expecting to be in, and it becomes clear that people who've been familiar with this issue have been waiting to have their say. So that's suddenly you get and, the and they are of having members. their say. Yeah, and I think probably wisely they've thought, hang on, before we go rushing into this this side of Christmas, let's just take stock as to the depth of feeling. Let's have a look at, at where these these splits are happening because there are a few fronts that this bill's having difficulties on. Aren't there? Yep. There's, so the the way that I c- I can see it is that you've got the series of amendments being pushed forward by the Theresa Villiers posse and uh, and this is a group of up to 60 odd MPs now isn't it well it's it's fluctuating because there isn't just one amendment being put forward by her there are several and they have different levels of support but but it's a high high watermark of of 60 something and they're they're largely representing the uh, the leafy green blue wall shires conservatives who are understandably feeling under threat from Lib Dem assault. Is, mm-hmm. that, is that fair? Because a, a couple of seats... Well, I think they're feeling under threat from a Labour assault. I think, although I think in some instances the Liberal Democrats may well do well in some of these areas, in national polling they're nowhere. Mm. Um, but they're feeling under threat, you're and right. In, the the basic those, point is the same. And in those those areas they were, they were standing on... Almost an anti-development ticket, weren't they? Well, an anti. Oh yes, yes, yeah, yeah. I mean, almost always, you know, no change here, you know, <laughs> uh, kind of thing. Which I, which you know, I, I'm Cornish, and the old liberals, uh, the David Penhaligans and so on, were very much for homes being built and so on. So this is, yes, the the, the danger is the liberal, liberal Democrats, who ought to be a, trying to do something a little bit, you know, refreshed, a, a seem to be stuck in that area of I know we'll just pick on the thing that. Uh, you know, upsets the local Tory MP the most, and but it is it is an area where they can they can prize absolutely no, and of course it does cause pain because there's a lot of people then who will be writing to the local uh, MP and will be saying to him or her, uh, look, you know, mandatory targets. We we've already got GP surgeries that can't cope. We've already got schools that are overstuffed, and now you're telling us we're going to have another thousand houses. So that's where the that's where the angst is driven from. Uh, and then, of course, within that, there will be some who just don't like change for the sake of not liking change. But they're a small number, um, you know. But 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 there they are. So the the um, 
it's also quite complex because people talk about nimbies, but there are also what I call owies, which are um, <laughs> which are people who are more concerned with um, you know you know uh, the the amount of infrastructure. In, in other words, um, okay, but with infrastructure. In other words, they're saying, well, you, you want all these houses. We not thrilled, but you know what our concern is: uh, the houses come, but the promised bypass. Mm. The promised GP surgery, the promised school, never seems to come because the planning gain system doesn't work, and they don't know why it doesn't work, they but it doesn't, it doesn't work. Happen, yeah. And so there's, so there's, you have got nimbies. Don't don't get me wrong in this debate. Of course, there are people who don't want to see change, but you've also got, and I say this as a former, you know, Shire Counties member of Parliament myself. You've got an awful lot of people who say, well, look, we know we need the homes because we we see our grandchildren and our children are not able to get somewhere. But do we really have to go down a system in which we have a number a house, number of houses mandated on us, but there's no similar uh, control on making sure that we also get all the hard and soft infrastructure that needs mm. to come with it? So, so that will have driven a lot of these MPs, not all, but a lot of them into that. It's the mandatory targets and the sort of five-year supply rule, which yes. is very arbitrary. So, so as always, there's a bit of nuance behind, uh, and there's nuance behind a NIMBY. <laughs> just to alliterate and I think people a lot of people do feel that their roads are congested and their public services are struggling and now you want to put another 500 houses which is probably another 1200 people uh, so where are they going to go to school how, you know how's it that's that's mm -hmm. the bit which I think is a legitimate discussion to have and certainly one that I used to have to you know deal with and I did find there was a point I would say 50, up to 15 years ago when the not in my backyard was the predominant view in the shires and then a period in which those people often 50 and above seeing their children and their grandchildren not being able to get a, f a roof over their head yeah yeah and you know I would say to them as well hang on a moment remember as well that the nurse that helps you the fireman or the police man or woman those those people at the moment cannot afford to live in the community they serve that is not right we need to make sure they have mm -hmm. a home so i think that has swayed people what where they whether those people who are anxious about this whole issue tend to sit is the okay we get that but we also want to make sure that we don't just stick up houses and fail to provide the public services we must see that investment and that is one of the big weaknesses i'd like to see a real emphasis on planning gain sort it out tidy it up make it much more make it simpler and uh, mandated uh, i mean there's various examples where it took 18 months or so in my area just to negotiate the, you know, the planning game, the section 106 arrangements between the authorities, never mind between the authority and the developer <laughs> you know, so uh, that's what drives people crazy and also, as you said, when, when they see no end result of it, that that's been yeah. negotiated, but then the infrastructure still doesn't appear. And they get stuck in an account because the county council hasn't talked to the district council, and but the houses have still gone up, and the people are, are stuck in their cars thinking, well, I thought we would have been promised that they, they were going to have that new bypass or mm. that new roundabout, but where is it? The houses are here. That's what really gets people. So do you, do you have some sympathy with the, the Theresa Villiers' stance? I... <sighs> We must have more homes for for people, yeah. and of all tenures, not just homes for ownership. We need them for rent. We need them for affordable. I think, and this is hopefully where Michael's able to, what we need to get is a sensible balance so that people can see 
what the benefits are, the benefits that are being promised actually coming forward and that's around planning gain i think it's also around um strengthening the capability of planning departments um i think that's important speeding the system up which i think can be done uh too much of it allows my learned friends not all lawyers i love love, love love most lawyers but you know some lawyers do they're on the clock and yeah. so surprise surprise it takes quite a long time for them to finish their remarks um and I, I, we just there are certain elements of the the system that need sorting out so with with your various former hats on mm. um, i don't know how many you can wear at the same time sort of stacked up on i'm like popular a, with, with milliners yes very good very good uh, looking at the the bill at the moment mm. There's some sympathy for the Theresa Villiers amendments for some people, but not for not all of them. I'm, I'm speaking for, yeah, 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 for, yeah, yeah, for you. Yeah, for, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. For, I'm gonna, we're we're going to take you back in time mm. and put you back on the. Uh, we'll put you on the back benches. Don't right, worry, okay. not too much of a workload. Um, where do you think? Would you be adding your name to these amendments? Would you be agitating for some change in this bill? Or do you think that the you know, the former whip, you'd just be thinking, okay, look, look, this is an important bit of legislation. We need to just get it over the line. I think I would ask to... I might put my name to the amendment for the simple reason of getting me in the room uh, between the uh, rebels and Michael in order and the, the government ministers to say, look, actually, there is a way through this, guys. Uh, but I don't support... I don't support the amendment. I wouldn't vote for the mm. amendment. Um, so sometimes people will do that because they will say, well, actually, there's going to be a discussion, so I want to be part of that discussion. So I'll put my name there. Now, you've got to be careful because members, if you do that, the assumption from constituents is that you're, you've signed it uh, and you're, you're mm. completely signed up to it, not realizing that part of it is a legislative process. It's yeah. a negotiating process. So, you know, and I kind of get that. So I think what, what I would probably want to do is to say to the government, I think there's, there's a genuine issue on the five-year land supply, which I think could be reformed, but the mandatory targets have to stay. Yeah. And I think that's the, that's the deal. And there that's the deal. some whispers along yeah. those along And then those there'll be some cuddling and some, you know, making sure that we've heard your, you know, heard your pain and other such things, you know. Um, but, but fundamentally, I think that's where the deal can be done. Uh, that group who really want to see uh, only with development, that was what, mm. what the AWI stood for, uh, he said, uh, desperately getting back to that. Um, that, that. That's what the AWIs are. They're saying, well, you know, only, yes, we'll have it, but only with infrastructure. Yeah. And so I think there's a bit of negotiating going on around that. But then there's, then there's the, the other issue that we have, which is a widening gulf over wind farms. Yes. Well that's, well, that's an interesting area. So I uh, had to deal with this, not that it was my immediate area, but I was the duty minister on the day when uh, a, a bill came up, which John Hayes was pushing at the time, mm. to ban all wind farms. And actually, I felt the, the ban was wrong because, A, when we this? had... This was... Oh, golly. Uh, so I was in the housing department. So this, this is 2012, 2013. So nearly a decade ago, mists of time. Um, and of course, in those days, um, there was an awful lot of popular concern about windmills popping up on very often quite attractive parts of mm. the, the country because obviously they tended to be on top of a hill for obvious reasons. Uh, but that did then make, mean they were they were it was in the early days of the technology they were regarded as an eyesore by a majority of people who had to deal with them, and there were all sorts of things about the effect on but wildlife and so on. So you, yeah. you're right. So so that came up. I personally think that. That will be worked out because I don't think John Hayes has got the numbers he wants. 
Uh, he's saying he was saying that. Um, I mean, obviously, by the time this goes out, we might have some more clarity on this. Mm. But he was saying that he would have the numbers to match the the group that are backing the amendment, the Simon Clark amendment. So, for anybody who hasn't caught up with all of this nuance yes. and detail, there is there's an. And Mark will be able to correct me if I get any of this wrong, but there is an amendment to the Leveling Up Bill that is seeking to overturn the de facto ban on onshore wind farms Correct. that came in under David yep. Cameron. That amendment, it's been tabled by Simon Clark. It's got the backing of, I think it's like 34, 35 yeah. MPs at the moment, including um, two former prime ministers, yes, um, a former levelling up secretary, former business secretaries. We've got Alok Sharma as well. Yes, no, it's got quite um, a large... It's got, yes. And I think... Uh, I would say the balance of the view of the government is they'll get they can get that through mm. um, oh, with the, a compromise. Or yes, because I, th- I mean I think you've got to, what you've got to remember there are various layers here. It's a little bit like fracking. Um, there are actually you know you can have an outright ban, but actually what you've got if you remove the outright ban, there's still a series of processes. Mm. It's not that tomorrow morning you know if they pass it tonight, for example, if that were to be the case, then the following morning suddenly developers will be popping these things up you know willy nilly. Um, there's still a whole planning process yeah, which goes through any like local community. No, exactly. So the ban I always felt was unnecessary and heavy handed. Mm. Bit of a gesture. Um, but, you know, John very much comes from that perspective, and uh, I, I think he'll lose that one. Hmm. But he's, he's saying that he's, he's got the numbers and he's going to, to fight it. So if, if nothing else, even if, even if he does lose it, hmm. doesn't it show that there's, there is this gulf, this widening gap in the party? Which You've always had um, people who are very much pro-growth, the economy matters most of all, and some who say, no, there are more other, there are other things in life, the aesthetes, if you like. Um, the, the, the anti-growth coalition? Well, you, you yes. No, I, well, obviously, that was an enormous <laughs> gathering, as we, as we were told. Um, but no, this is, this is, I think, more souls just saying, hang on a moment, before we start going down this path, is this something we want to do for the long term? Hmm. Uh, I don't agree with them. I think on this, they're, they're overstating the problem. Um, and again, I suppose you can say that's one of the issues around housing, isn't it? Um, do we want to sit for towns to sprawl out um, and and every local authority to meet their mandated housing numbers, uh, especially because at one stage they were based on incorrect population numbers? Mm-hmm. So you can understand the frustration of a community then saying, well, hang on a moment, you want us to build a thousand houses because the projected need is X, but actually we now know the projected need is much less than X, but you're still telling us and we're not going to get the infrastructure and the roads and the schools. And so you can see where the, the tension mm. dries. But but that, I think you've always had in the Conservative Party some people whose view is it isn't all about money and other people whose view is if we don't create the wealth and the jobs, then all the other things that we cherish, you know, we simply can't uh, continue with. So that tension is not new. I would say the aesthetes are a fairly small and ageing group, personally. But, you know, that's maybe I'm... I'm just a nasty mercant- mercantilist. But, so do you think you're you're confident that Gove's going to get the, the I think Gove will work, us, will, will work it out. Because it's not the only thing he's got on his plate at the moment. No, no, no. There's, there's lots of other things. I think they will work it out. I think they'll take their time. Then that's fine. I think the frustration, I always felt, and you get this with legislation, it's a bit of a rag bag because there's lots of other things around levelling up that actually would be very good. But... Um, you know, you get these things thrown into a bill, and it's got all mm. sorts of 
you know, the Americans call, call it a Christmas tree bill. You know, it's got everything hanging off it, you know. Um, and actually, there are four or five things you want to try and preserve. So you do you actually just jettison these five or six other things? So there's always that negotiation. Mm-hmm. I mean, this stuff happens with every bill. This is called lawmaking. It ain't pretty. It's like sausage making, you know. Uh, you don't always want to watch the process. It's the outcome. It's not for the squeamish. It's not for the squeamish. So it's it's a negotiation, and it, and there's a degree... That's always been the case. That, that is not new. I think it's just when it's set in the context of all the machinations over the last six months, yeah. people then assume this is going to be... This is unusual. But actually, all it is is someone's opened the door for too long, or maybe the... Uh, to take a different metaphor, you know, the Wizard of Oz curtain has been left back slightly too long, and someone just needs to pull that back and, you know, nothing to look at here. Very good. That's a convoluted metaphor <laughs> for those those only of a certain age. No, I was enjoying that. I was I was trying to work out just then who who the wizard was, who Dorothy was. <laughs> my my mind went. It off was the more the the shield, the mask had dropped for a bit, and that, the that reality. Makes far more the reality. I was trying to cast it in my head. Yes. Well, we're not in we're 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 not in Kansas anymore. <laughs> um. <laughs> just to again unpack that for for anyone listening who hasn't who hasn't gone in, into the detail mm. of, of the the amendment paper. Which is which is long now, isn't it? Oh yeah, got one hundred and thirty odd pages of, of amendments and, yes. and counting, and, and quite a lot of those are government ones, aren't they? They're, they're yes, because details and that's and that is that again happens. Um, so uh, many years ago, I was the opposition spokesman uh, uh, on the stamp duty land tax rules mm. that came in under the Finance Act, and that was one hundred and hundred eighty pages of legislation with six annexes in in addition. <laughs> And I tabled 140 amendments as the opposition spokesman, and the government tabled just shy of 100. So people ask why these things take time. Well, you know, uh, and sometimes the amendments are consequential, so you're changing the percentage figure in uh, clause A, so it's then got to change in B, C, Mm -hmm. D, and E, and, you know, all that kind of stuff. So, but it is important. Yeah, I mean, there are a lot of critical issues here. It's a big bill. And, and again, with this one, because I mean, obviously it's it's largely a planning bill, isn't it? I mean, we, mostly, we yes. talk about it as being yeah. levelling up. No, it's a, no but bill. it's mostly a planning bill. And and that's something that, that as you say, it's, it's incredibly complex and one thing knocks on to affect another and so on. There's that cascade effect. Um, do you remember when you, when you were looking at, for example, on the, the SDLT bill, mm. the... As the opposition, did you feel that the amendments that you were tabling were um, taken in good faith, that they were sort of acknowledged, that they were looked at? Because it seems that there are quite a lot of amendments that um, Labour are putting in for this bill as well, uh, the the levelling up bill. And I just want to I just want to get a feel, I guess, okay, of how so, those so are received. Why do you, so some some amendments are um, never going to be progressed, and both mm. sides know that. But someone's just wanting to flag a point up that they're not happy about A or B. They're not going to push it in, to a vote. And most of the amendments will not be pushed to a vote. Um, so what will happen is they'll be grouped. Some of them are people saying, you know, I'm particularly unhappy about X, so I want to be mm. included in the conversation about the bigger amendments. And you tend to get, in each section of a bill, you'll tend to get five or six substantive uh, amendments where the, the big issues lie and then there'll be a, a, a cluster around those. Some of them will be debating points. So, for example, if there's a clause uh, about a matter and you want to unpick an element of that, the way you do it as an opposition spokesman in committee stage is you table an amendment to clause one and your amendment, uh, the amendment is always debated first. 
Mm. Because obviously, if you agree or to the amendment, it gets added to the thing, and then you and that would change the clause that you exactly. Debate, yeah. So therefore, it's a device for being able to lead the debate. So some of those, when they get to committee stage, will be simply about that process. They're not going to be put to the to the vote. Uh, some of it will be wanting to test to see whether the minister, you, you know, uh, is on top of that subject. Others are about the thing you mentioned earlier, which is unintended consequences. Mm. Because very often when you're driving a bill, um, you won't have thought about X or Y. And one of the strengths of the committee stage is, is literally that process of saying, so how will that work? Who will fund it? Uh, if this happens, what does that mean? It's that stuff which you need to do, you know, primary legislation level. Um, and so that's where the committee gets really yeah. down into the weeds and really starts to unpick it. And that's so it does mean that some of those, quite a few of those amendments are tabled with a view to the opposition or a group, but principally it'll be the opposition, uh, wanting to then to lead the debate in certain areas when they get to committee. This is fascinating. I think we should rename this this particular episode "Sausage Making." Sausage with making. Mark yes. Pritt. Yes. I think that's very good. I'm, I I find this fascinating actually, working out how it all gets put together. Um, so with when when you were looking going back to that that stamp duty mm. bill, um, how much of what you put forward was actually then taken through into the bill? How much of it was how much of it was debated? How much of it was considered? How much of it actually? Well, this was this, this so this was uh, where are we now? This was two thousand and two three mm. um, maybe three four. Uh, so Labour had a majority of a hundred, so none of my amendments got through. <laughs> and they were quite rigorous about it. I mean, they made it perfectly clear that we will not be taking any of the Honourable Gentleman's amendments or, you know, agreeing to them. Um, did, did you see anywhere they clearly thought, oh, actually, no, that's that we do need that. that, that, that well, you never actually, really, I mean, so it's, we'll, it's, we'll do our own version of that one. Oh, you, you'll get that. You'll get that. Now, whether they see, yes, and I always found that slightly childish because actually, I mean, I know it's about, well, I, you know, we won't accept your amendment, but we'll, we'll write ours, which will be very similar to your <laughs> amendment, and then we'll table it, and we will accept. It always seems to me rather childish and pointless in that sense. And actually, it's wiser, I think. And I think that practice has probably died out a bit. But no, no, so I mean, almost all of my amendments, uh, you know, uh, didn't didn't make it uh, onto the cutting floor. Well, they made it onto the cutting floor. They didn't make it into the film, um, and that's kind of how it is. But that's mm. that's the part of the job is to tease and test. And also, they don't when they come in in the morning. The minister doesn't know. This is why legislation this way is important. You as the minister, you don't know what the opposition spokesman is going to lead on. Mm. So you have to prepare for it all. And if you have to prepare for it all, the department has to prepare for it all. And the department has to think through what the answers are to all those questions. Because it's no good saying, oh, well, actually, we'll get back to you uh, because, uh, Mr. Prisk, because actually we hadn't, we didn't think you were going to run that amendment. <laughs> Not good enough. And the, the whoever's chairing the, the committee session would give them a, you know, a very serious uh, time. So, And indeed, I could then push it to the vote so if, if I wanted to in committees. So they've got to be prepped. And that is that is where the best scrutiny happens. Because mm. if you are the minister, you don't want to be made to look a fool. So you're going to prep to make absolutely sure you've got potential answers to what your opposition uh, spokesman is going to test you on. And that's where the that's where where the good work... That's, that's why it is true that a government is better when it has a really good opposition because ministers have to up their game. If they know they're going to meddle complete Charlie at the dispatch box, my goodness, they're going to move heaven and earth to avoid that because it's a very public place to, to crash. Yeah. And I've seen it happen where people have not prepared and the opposition or they just 
try to you know muscle their way through and dance over certain things, and the house has risen as one and nailed them. Is that another reason for for this particular bill being taken out of play? That I mean, as the government said, well, there's there's no time in the in the schedule, which is usually code for many other things going wrong. But it, do you think that there is actually something in that that actually they need more time to look through not only all of the amendments that are coming in from everywhere else, but the the detail that they're putting into the bill themselves. Yes, I mean, I, I think probably you know Michael Gove will have inherited this. I mean, obviously he was he was well, he inherited it from himself. Really. Well, there was an interregnum <laughs> of, of Simon and Greg Clark, but yes, so so that came forward. But I think what he'll want to do is to look at um, he needs to look at the timetable. Hmm. You know, what can I get through in a reasonable amount of time, and what can I get through that actually will uh, be actionable within a sensible space of time so people can see the benefits. Yeah. And maybe there are certain sections that actually we need to drop in order to get the, the bulk of it through. So I think it's a... Also, you always have to remember there is a limited amount of time in the Commons for second reading debates of bills. So you can't have all the ones you want. No, no department can have all the bills they want, so they've got to pick the two or three they mm. really want. And, you know, one might argue is levelling up best achieved through legislation. Planning reform, yes, perhaps, but actually there are a lot of other things that can be done that can achieve levelling up. So, you know, the government might, and I'm speculating here, I do not do not know, but they may be saying to themselves, let's look at our list. What do we want to get through by next 8 May, June? Which means through the Commons, through the Lords, back into the Commons. So there's that three-step process. Um, and they may be saying to themselves, let's refine this, let's take another bill out, let's bring in a new bill, you know, there may be certain priorities. Um, and that, that that may be part of the debate, because it's not just about what the department wants. The department then has to go to the leader of the House and the chief whip, and uh, they will be saying, well, look, there's this amount of legislative time. We've only got so many days, so what else do we need? Well, we've got this, and we've got... It's always a fight. It's always a difficult mm. battle, because there's always too much stuff for the legislative time they've got. Well, that is that is an issue, isn't it? Because, as you say, that the leveling up agenda itself is is fairly long term. Mm. I mean, the pots of money are coming in supposedly um, during this current parliament, but most of the impact is going to be after that. And if they're focusing on things that will have an impact before the next election, this isn't one of them, is it? No, I mean, I, I you know, there's lots of things around. I think uh, devolving powers, uh, mm. and that can be done. Some of that can be done with existing legislation. Um, so there's that. But quite there's a grant of the, that, that extension of devolution that is within the bill, isn't it? That's that is true. So the, and the next funding round, as well, yes, the next round of devolution is. Uh, yeah. I think there some of the existing devolution powers could be extended to different parts of the country. Mm. So there are there are other options in that sense. But yes, yeah, so it may be mayor for Cornwall. A mayor for Cornwall, which is a very interesting thing. I mean, it's it's difficult, isn't it? Because we're used in the states; they have governors for their states, um, and we don't have that equivalent. Well, I suppose the high sheriff historically was probably the nearest equivalent. But um, you know, most members of the public will assume we're, we're going to have a group of people wearing green tights uh, <laughs> uh, with the, with their merry men and then those. Such, so, the, so high sheriff doesn't. I mean, I'm, there are some fantastic high sheriffs. And I'm going to get shot now by <laughs> people I know who do that brilliant role. Shot by the sheriff, but did you shoot the sheriff? <laughs> Let's not go there. <laughs> but that, I mean, that that is a, a, a danger, isn't it? That even though I, I think that's that's a really good point that that there is a limited amount of time. There are new mm. priorities. The leveling up agenda it is the government's flagship policy absolutely but 
it's a flagship policy inherited from Boris Johnson, who was focusing on that north-south blue wall, red wall coalition that's mm. becoming increasingly difficult to maintain. Mm. So is there is there a feeling that actually this could end up being parked or re-examined, stripped back? I mean, no, it was I something think, that was being talked about a couple of months yes, ago. And I think they'll still want the process of, of helping those areas that are struggling to mm. uh, compete better with the, with the more prosperous areas, and they'll also want to look at individuals within the communities. Because levelling up, in my mind, is not simply about uh, suggesting that some towns in in more remote areas are struggling, and we must get them to their, you know, we must improve them. It's also about individuals within communities who are struggling. It's, yeah. So it's about people and places. And so there are two elements to it. That's why education matters, training matters. It's why transport matters, planning matters, uh, local economic development. You know, there are five critical areas and then there's the question as to whether Whitehall delivers it or whether actually you're able to give back to those communities much greater say and bring together place-based policy so that your education policy and your training policy fits with your business policy for that locality so that that's I think a critical part of what leveling up and localism can mean do you think that we could see we could see it being retooled getting rid of the housing elements getting rid of some of the planning elements focusing on the devolution could do yeah you, you could do yes that would be quite a radical well you could split it so you could say yeah. well actually you know we'll 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 take it in a different direction in that sense so you could do that but i i suspect what they'll want to do is to find a compromise around the housing issue so that can proceed um the windmill issue is in my view, it's more an energy policy issue than mm. it is a planning issue. But obviously, it requires planning because that has to be under under, under some form of local control. I think well, that also it's not it's ahead. not the energy side of it that, that they're objecting to, is it? It's it's the it's the built infrastructure. It is. Thing Although it was interesting, twelve years ago, certainly, you know, there were some people who argued that wind uh, wasn't the right way forward. Remembering, of course, that then the other energy alternatives were a lot cheaper. Yeah. And of course, yeah. what has changed dramatically is how expensive everything else is. And now suddenly wind, partly because uh, the industry producing these turbines has got the unit costs down, but suddenly you're now in a situation in which wind is actually very viable, mm. uh, which was not 12 years ago. It was, it was jolly expensive. If you were to retool the levelling up bill to that extent, then you mm -hmm. would kind of be, you'd be missing that vital programme directed at those those northern seats, wouldn't you? That, that, that well, red wall. I mean, I think there's a lot of general conversation about this, but in most of the communities, I mean, I spent some time setting up local enterprise partnerships 12 years ago mm -hmm. and visited a lot of those communities that felt they'd been left behind. And, you know, there are different levels here of activity. One is about making their town centre somewhere that they can actually be proud of and has yeah. services and facilities they need. That And that's a relatively... That's a bricks and mortar issue. Then there's the question of making sure there are jobs and education and training for youngsters. So that's another important one. Then I think there's the question of transport. So there is access to other parts of, of the rest of their region and I hopefully further away. And then there's the question as to whether who makes those decisions. Is it somebody a long way away or is it somebody that's from their community? Mm -hmm. So I think those different levels, you can still do good things, um, uh, you know, and get some of the evidence shown. I mean, to be fair, you know, there are projects that they that that, uh, they, that haven't been waiting for this bill to come forward that they can progress. 
I think the only thing I would say is um, uh, inevitably uh, when you've won a constituency in a seat that's always been held by the other political party, A, you're surprised probably as much as anybody else is, and B, it's a huge disruption because usually in a, in a seat where, let's say, traditionally it's always been held by Labour, then the Conservative candidates know that the chances are that that seat's always going to stay with Labour. So what often has happened, and it happens for both political parties, is the local council is in a safe seat. The local councillors for the other side usually end up you know, rotating as to who stands this time in the knowledge that they'll stand, they'll do their best, but, you know, uh, they're probably not going to win. Suddenly, this time, the person that rotated, yeah. and I'm being slightly cynical here, but the person <laughs> that rotated who was very, and we, we all had this in politics, you're very politely told this, don't worry, no danger of you getting elected, it's just a few weeks, finished, lovely, thank you. Four weeks later, you're a member of parliament. You've got to go to London. You've got to uproot, do you uproot your family? Uh, you're going to spend half the week there and half the week in mm -hmm. your constituency. You may indeed still be a councillor, so you've got to unpick all of that. Um, it's hugely disruptive. So I think I won't be surprised if a higher than average proportion of those people decide, especially in that this parliament has been grim for new members. Yeah. They've had two and a half years of COVID. They barely got their feet under the desk before they were sent away from Westminster. And that has left them without the support and encouragement and camaraderie that you need in a workplace, especially if you're new to it. Yeah, and especially and, one so Byzantine and confusing. As, yeah, as absolutely. And so, so I think for a lot of them, it has been a bit of a grim experience. And they haven't had the sort of support and the arm around the shoulder and you know, and sharing the camaraderie of it. And then, of course, they have when they have got back to Westminster, there's been this the soap opera of the party gate and all of yeah. that. Um, and then you know the change of leaders that that's been bitter. And knowing that you won your seat, you know, to your surprise, let alone anybody else's. Therefore, you're clinging on with a tiny majority. So. Are you still going to be here in another five years? Mm. So I wouldn't be surprised if a larger than average proportion of those people, particularly from northern seats, were to uh, step down. I think some of the Midlands ones, though, are in a much stronger position than perhaps some people realise. And that'll be the interesting test for it. I don't think it'll be no more levelling up. We're just going to draw the line, you know, somewhere yeah. somewhere between Nor Retrench, not yeah. between Nottinghamshire and, and Yorkshire <laughs> and, and stuff the rest. It, that doesn't, it doesn't work that way. Not least the fact that the Conservative Party is led by a Yorkshire Member of Parliament. Yeah. There are quite a lot of, of younger MPs, aren't there, that, that yes. are saying, actually, I'm not running again. And some of them who have reasonably good uh, majorities. Mm. Like, I suppose the, the one that will be most um, familiar to, to our audience is uh, Deanna Davison, mm. who's the levelling up minister, um, and MP for Bishop Auckland. Mm. And uh, she's got a, a majority, I think it's nearly 8,000, so between seven and 8,000, which, I mean, she's she's the first Conservative MP for that area. Yes. But yeah, it doesn't, I mean, it looks like it, that, that could be one of the ones that stays blue in the next election. Could well be. It, it yeah. looks like it's yes. enough of a... But she's chosen not to. Yes. Yeah. Well, which, uh, which speaks again to what you were saying about, I think, about the environment and the way it's happened. Because she's a, a minister. Yes. And I I don't know her circumstances, so I no. I'm, I I don't want to you know try and guess what it, what the actual reasons are. They're, they're, that's for her. But um, we should not forget the human side of this. Yeah. And yeah. you know she's a young woman who clearly of great potential. Um, 
you know, she wasn't necessarily expecting to get elected. Suddenly she was. And then, we, as I said, we've had the COVID thing and all the rest of it. Um, it is difficult. And I think she may have decided that, you know, it's not for her. And that's fair enough. There's been a lot else going on. So should we just do a quick... Quick run through, yes. Quick and run I'll, be, through, I'll, run I'll, I'll give short answers. Said the politician. We've had... <laughs> We've had, I think, the the biggest issue on on Michael Gove's plate over the past couple of weeks, as well as the the bill, but the um, Abishak, mm. um, a tragic death under the watch of a housing association, which then I yeah. mean, handled it about as badly as he oh, as he possibly terrible. can. What do you think are the next steps on from that? Because it it looks like it's fast becoming another one of Gove's um, cause celebs mm. or, or bet noirs, depending on which French phrase you want to insert. Yeah. I mean, it's a terrible tragedy, and it should not happen. I think it reminds me that bad landlords are not restricted to just the private sector. You know, I think what we've got to focus on here is poor practice and bad management, as well as, obviously, in some parts of the private sector, there's a small minority who are crooks and rogues who need to be found out and removed from being landlords. Um, But there's also, as we've seen in this terrible case, um, poor management uh, and unresponsiveness to legitimate complaints from Mm. renters. And this is where I think the law does need to change. Michael has said that bill is going to come forward uh, in terms of uh, social housing. I think there's a bigger awkward issue here for the whole of the social housing sector. And I, uh, I'm, I chair Saltair Housing, which is delivering the government's affordable housing guarantee scheme. So, you know, I, I know many of the, uh, the key players in the social housing sector. Um, there is a big change coming, and it's been coming for a little while now, and that is that this, this sector is going to have to recognize that it's going to become consumer-led and not provider-driven. And what does that mean in English? Um, what that means in English is, is I think for a long time, the presumption from the social housing sector has been that actually renters, you know, would receive their social housing, would be grateful for that. And these social housing organizations were good organizations trying to do their best yeah. without exception. That is clearly not the case. And I think we've all got to move on now to say, actually, Watching the ITN reports, uh, they've been very assiduous in this, and this terrible case now, I think, continues to shift that dial so that renters are no longer going to put up with poor uh, responses to complaints. They're not going to put up uh, with, uh, you know, terrible housing. That does mean that there's there's a huge backlog in repairs and maintenance that's going to need to be tackled. Whether that will then impact on the budgets in terms of the new homes built is a moot point alongside the challenge, of course, um, that all these homes have got to be made sustainable environmentally. So I think um, this is quite a fundamental turning point for the social housing sector. It seems it seems that it's it's the same sort of tragic tipping point as Grenfell was. Mm. It's, it's that same sort of a tragedy that then... It is a strange thing in our public affairs, and I think it's in, let's be honest, it's probably in human life generally. It tends to take a tragedy or uh, a shock for us to change our habits. And then we've had we've had some other, um, it is news, but but is it, is it that much of a change? Um, Lucy Fraser, her comments on, on senior living, on, on oh, yes. later living, that 
that's that seems to have taken that forward. But this is something that's been sort of rumbling along. It's for been rumbling for at quite least some five housing ministers. I uh, almost certainly. Um, I'm, I, I think we're, we we should offer our listeners a prize for the collective noun for a group of house, <laughs> former housing ministers. It, it might be polite rude. answers. Might polite <laughs> answers only. He said immediately, <laughs> regretting that. Um, no, I think what she said was the, a question came forward about whether she was going to do it. And I got one got the impression, watching her response, that she was not unaware this might come forward. Mm. Uh, and so she was quite clear that the potential for an older person's housing task force, which the government had thought looked quite interesting in February and March, but hadn't done anything since, uh, actually now needs to be actioned. And it does. I mean, the reality is we're going to be at 17 million people over uh, retirement age by 2040. That's yeah. a third of the population. A huge amount of housing simply is not suitable for those people. So you need more new housing, which is suitable, but you also need to look at the existing housing stock. Um, and indeed, uh, very appropriately, I, I, I hope to see something in the States Gazette written by yours truly, <laughs> suggesting some ways we can achieve this. <laughs> this is very true. Watch this space. Mm. Um, the, the, I think the final thing that I want to come on to while I've got you, before we release Mark back into the wild where, <laughs> where he should be, running free. Um, all of the things that we've got going on at the moment, I mean, one, one person I was talking to said that they're all the hallmarks, and the reaction certainly is the hallmarks of a government in its last flailing days, which may or may not be true. You mm. might not agree with that. Um, but it does seem that, the, you know, as, as you said, you get rebellions all the time. You get amendments all the time. Yeah. You get flagship legislation having hiccups all the time. This is stuff that happens all the time. But the conversation around it is far more negative, which, again, sort of points to that people are expecting mm. failure. Um, are we in a position now where the next election is Labour's to lose? I think we probably are. But... If I've learned anything in politics, nothing is certain. <laughs> um, I, I think, you know, the last six months has seriously damaged the Conservative Party's uh, reputation that whatever else one may feel about uh, the Conservative Party, you tended to believe that it was run by people who knew how to run things. Yeah. And that, the, tr the trust period has, and I think, to be honest, parts of uh, the Boris Johnson period just did not help. And so I think a lot of the population have taken the view that, right, maybe it's time now to seriously look at the opposition. And we've had the Conservatives in for a very long time. They're on Prime Minister number four or whatever it is. You know, where do we go from here? Um, I think if I was Labour frontbench, I would know now that actually the eye of Sauron, the eye of the media and public is about to turn to them. And let's be honest, if they can't win in these circumstances, some might harshly ask, when can they? Yeah. So the pressure is on. Now, I think they've done quite an able job to start removing the negative things against a future Labour government, where I think... And the this attack is the, lines. They, there seem to be fewer attack lines that can exactly. be weaponized. Uh, in terms of Corbyn and Brexit and migrations, mm. Starmer has, you know, mapped out critical things if he's going to win back his former voters into that area. What I think he hasn't done yet, which Blair was assiduous at, is in building a positive agenda mm. for what he's about. Because the public will tend to, when they get to an election, say to themselves, well, what about the current lot? Am I better or worse off? Uh, if they feel, and many may well, that they're worse off with the current lot, they will then turn to the new lot, and they will ask the simple question, so what are you going to do for me and my community and my family? And if it's fuzzy and a bit this and that, 
then I think he's got problems. And we have to remember, um, rightly in my view, it, it, but difficult. It, but it's difficult for him. He's effectively accepted much of the financial environment yeah. which Jeremy Hunt has set out. So the room for manoeuvre, being able to splurge a few billion over here and whatever, which has been a habit, perhaps, he said uh, in a slightly biased way, uh, of former Labour, Labour, Labour governments, that isn't going to be so easy now. So the differentiation... Well, especially as quite a lot of those spending cuts are timed to come in exactly. after the election. So whoever they? wins the next election is going to have to deal with some very difficult decisions. Yeah. So it isn't going to be an agenda of saying, hey, this is what we're build- doing new. For It's going to be how we manage things. Yeah. Now, they'll want to have new things. They'll want to divert resources. So, yeah, I would, I would say that I think the interesting question now is how Labour responds. Do they up their game? Uh, do they start getting those messages out? Do they start getting on the front foot? Um, you know, the logic must be after all this time, if we get to 2024, 14 years, huge problems, uh, difficult economy, that the public would be looking for a change. They will be. The question is, who will be that change? Will it be Starmer or will it be Rishi Sunak? Um, wait and see. Wait and see, indeed. Um, and that that's all we've got time for uh, in this edition. See you next time when we'll be back. And, um, you know, in the new year, we might even have a guest or two. Sounds good to me. Bring in someone else. Just in case you're getting bored with listening to our two voices, we're going to bring in a couple more. Excellent. So, uh, again, we'll, we'll, uh, we'll just tease you with that. Lovely. But um, from EG's Office Politics, the, uh, the Prisk and Piers show, um, we will see you again later. Goodbye. Au revoir.